Well, if you have a Bible, would you turn with me to Second uh, Samuel chapter 9? And if you don't have a Bible or would like to use our red ones in the seats in front of you, Second Samuel chapter 9, it's on page 149. 149. Well, good morning again. My name's Jeremy, and I'm glad that uh, we get to be together. Um, thanks for joining online. If you're watching online or listening to the podcast after the fact, hey, if you're new with us or visiting or watching for the first time, thanks for joining us. We'd love to, to meet you. Um, we've got a, a Connect card in the, the red Bibles in front of you. We'd love to have you fill that out, turn it into the table in the back for a gift, or uh, comment on our Facebook feed that you're watching at home. Um, this morning, we're continuing our look at the life of David, and we're going to look at this scene in the life of David when he was king, and in this scene, David shows kindness towards someone who is in a miserable and dire circumstance. It is a picture of pure grace an outpouring of kindness onto someone who does not deserve it. This story is a picture of the gospel. It's a picture of the good news of what God has done through his son Jesus for you and me. Friends, we need to get the gospel. We need to truly understand what this message of good news is. We have to be moved by the gospel. And so my prayer as we look at this story is that this story would move us, um, that it would captivate us. Um, I, I'm not an artsy guy, and I've visited the Cleveland Art Museum. I, it doesn't move me. I'm not an art guy. It just doesn't make sense to me. But I love movies. And I love good stories, and many move, movies move me to tears. And some movies have actually moved me to change my life because of how powerful that story is. This morning, as we look at this scene, this episode in the life of David, it is a story that points us to the good news of Jesus. And my prayer is that it would move us that it would change us, that it would transform us individually and as a church. We have to get the gospel. Um, one of my favorite authors and pastors, Ray Ortland, wrote this wonderful book, a brief book called The Gospel. Uh, pick it up, read it, it's fantastic. And one of his main points in this book is that a church can teach the gospel and, and people can individually believe the gospel, but until the church embodies the gospel and, and, and allows the gospel to shape the community, well, then you aren't really getting the gospel. And so my prayer is that we wouldn't just hear this good news or believe it ourselves, but we would allow it to transform us so that we would become a community shaped by the story of Jesus. So we're going to look at the story of David from 2 Samuel chapter 9, and uh, he, he, he is showing kindness on this guy named Mephibosheth. 
And I, I learned pretty quickly this week how to spell Mephibosheth as I was writing. So uh, bear with me if I stumble over my words. It's a hard, it's a hard name. We're going to read 2 Samuel chapter 9. And David said, Is there still anyone left in the house of Saul that I might show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba. And they called him to David, and the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, Yes, I am your servant. And the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. The king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, He is in the house of Machir, the son of Amuel, at Lodabar. The king David sent and brought him from the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, at Lodabar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan. And I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belong to Saul and to all of his house I have given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce, that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, according to all that my lord the king commands his servant, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both feet. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and for this story. We do pray in your spirit, would you open our eyes to see the truth before us. Would you convict us of our sin and lead us to your tender kindness and love towards us through Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. This is a beautiful story. It's a beautiful story of redemption and love. And so as we go, I want to give you some frameworks to help us think through this story. You'll see these in the bulletin. My three points are, are these. We're going to look at the kindness of God. We're going to look at the desperation of man. And we're going to look at the seat at the table. The kindness of God, the desperation of man, and the seat at the table. First, let's look at the kindness of God. David starts and he asks, Is there still anyone left in the house of Saul that I might show him kindness 
for Jonathan's sake. He's asking this question because several years before, and we looked at this before Easter, David was friends with Jonathan. Jonathan was the king's son. He was the prince. And as David was becoming popular, he had defeated Goliath. They became friends. And in fact, they covenanted to one another. They became closer than brothers. And in this covenant friendship, they promised to one another to always be kind. You see, David was on the run for his life because King Saul was jealous of David and actually wanted him to die. And so David said to Jonathan, Jonathan, would you please be kind to me? Show your kindness on my life. And Jonathan said, yes. And in saying yes, Jonathan said, David, would you agree also to be kind to me and show kindness on my family? And David said, yes. So David, many years later, is now king, and he's wondering, is there anyone from Jonathan's family in the house of Saul that I might fulfill my promise to and show kindness toward. He asks Ziba, this servant of Saul, he comes in and says, is there not still someone in the house of Saul that I might show kindness, the kindness of God to? This is a radically uh, different approach that we would have expected from a king at this time. When, when, in, in those days when one kingdom and one power would be overturned or a dynasty would end and another would rise, one of the first things that the king, the new king and the kingdom would do was to find every last member of the former king's family and put them to death. It, it was to protect their own dynasty. So there would be no one in years to come who would challenge the throne, no threat to the kingdom. David says, no, I'm not going to do that. I want to show kindness to this family. I want to bless them. And not just any ordinary kind of kindness. When I think of the word kind, I think of you know, a parent uh, stepping into bickering kids to command them saying, hey, be kind to your brother. Be kind to your sister. Now, this is something deeper. This is the kindness of God that David wants to show. What is the kindness of God? Well, that word kindness, uh, I, I don't often sort of reveal the Greek or the Hebrew, but this is an important word. And it's the, it's the Hebrew word hesed. And it's, it's this word that is translated here, kindness, and, um, and, and elsewhere it's, it's translated steadfast love. This hesed of God is, is not just something that God does towards people. This is part of God's identity. This is so crucial to who he is and how he operates in this world. He is hesed. He shows hesed love. Back in uh, the story of the Exodus, when Moses goes up on the mountain and he says, God, reveal yourself to me. I want to know who you are. And God says, okay, I'm going to put you in the cleft of this mountain. I'm going to pass before you, and you will see my glory. And as he does, the name of the Lord is revealed. And God says, this is who I am. I am the Lord God. I am, um, uh, uh, what, what is it? 
He is a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He keeps steadfast love for thousands forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Twice in in God's self-revelation of himself, he says, I am a God of hesed love, of kindness. This word is translated kindness and steadfast love. It's translated mercy and loving kindness. And when we get to the New Testament, the author is translated as grace. God is a God of grace. I think the best way to understand what hesed love is, is with the phrase, it's his loyal love. It's his love that he shows in the context of a relationship with whom he has bound himself to. I think of like in a wedding ceremony when the husband and wife vow to one another to love each other no matter what comes. It's that kind of loyal love. It's love that's not dependent upon the other person deserving that love. It is a love that says, I'm going to show you love because I have promised myself to you. I think one of the the best ways to understand it is to see how has God shown this love. There's a story from the book of Numbers. Moses is leading the Israelites in the wilderness. They're on their way to the promised land, and the Israelites are, are tired, and they're hungry, and they're thirsty, and they're grumbling, and they're fearful of the nations, and so they start complaining to God. They say, God, why did you give us Moses to lead us? Why have you dragged us out into the wilderness? And they begin to sin against God, trying to set up their own leader to take them someplace else. And Moses goes before God, and he pleads to God that he would forgive them for their grumbling. And when Moses pleads for God to forgive, he doesn't say, God, forgive them because they deserve it. He doesn't say, God, forgive them because they deserve another chance. They'll do better. He doesn't say, God, forgive them, because if you forgive them, well, then they'll be better people. No, Moses says, God, remember your steadfast love and forgive them. And God does. God's hesed love forgives and blesses, not because the people deserve it, but because God is committed to his relationship that he has established with his people. And so David has established this relationship with Jonathan and with Jonathan's family. He says, I want to show hesed love to them, not because they deserve it, but because I have promised myself to them. When we get to the New Testament, I said Paul translates this as grace. And in Ephesians 2, it's so beautifully put that we are saved by grace, not because of any works that we have done, not because we deserve it, but because God has freely given us his love. God says, anyone that would come to me in faith, I will freely forgive their sins and welcome them in. It is by grace, because I have promised that. How do we know that we've received this kind of hesed love? How can we know if we've experienced God's kindness? Well, it transforms us. That's what 
happened to David. David knew of God's hesed love towards him. So now he says, who can I show the kindness of God to? The, the, the proof of having received God's loyal love is that we turn around and say, who can I show loyal love to? Who do you know today, this week, that you could show loyal love to? Maybe you have an enemy who does not deserve it. Who can you show loyal love to? Who have you been overlooking that you can lift up? Who is unworthy that you can bestow grace onto? David understood the kindness of God, and so he began to extend it to others. Do you know God's kindness towards you? Who can you show it to today? Well, let's keep looking at the story. Because of the kindness of God um, put upon David, he now extends it to someone else. And we're going to look at the story and actually see what does it look like for David to show the kindness of God. Let's turn our attention now to Mephibosheth, the, the object of God's kindness, the object of David's kindness, and learn from him um, the desperation that he was in, and learn from him what the desperation of man really is. So Ziba, the servant of Saul, he comes in, he says, hey, I know someone from the house of Saul. He's still alive. There is someone left that you can bless. His name is Mephibosheth, and he is crippled in his feet. And so David sends uh, to him and brings him to the palace. Now, Mephibosheth's story it is a tragedy. We, we learn about this story in 2 Samuel chapter 4. Uh, just imagine for a moment you're Mephibosheth. You've been born into the palace. You are born the son of the prince, the grandson of the king. You grew up thinking, one day, I will sit on the throne and rule Israel. You think, I've got a name behind me. People know who I am. I have fame and popularity and notoriety. I have an inheritance that I will receive one day, the kingdom. But when Mephibosheth was five, word came to his house that his father, Jonathan, had died in battle, and that his grandfather Saul, likewise, had died in battle. His kingdom was gone. And in fear, his nurse carried him out of the house as a refugee, running away from what appeared to be certain death even for him. As they were running, I don't know, we don't know if, if the nurse tripped or if she fell, or if she was nervous, but somehow Mephibosheth fell out of his nurse's arms, and he landed in such a way that his legs were permanently injured. He could not walk, and he became an exile, a, a political refugee in a back town in the middle of nowhere. Mephibosheth's life was tragic. He had it all. 
He had it all, and then it was taken away. It was gone like that. He had it all, but then it was gone. He had no more family, no more home, no more ability, no more inheritance, no security, nothing. Even his name, Mephibosheth, means out of the mouth of shame. I wonder, every morning if he woke up, if he remembered his name and thought, my life is shameful. And just look at the way he looks at himself. In, in, in verse 8, he calls himself a dead dog. Not a, a treasured companion and member of our family. No, a, a dirty and stinky, good-for-nothing creature of the street. That is how he understood his condition. But Mephibosheth's story, this tragedy, it's not his alone. This is the story of humanity. This story is true for all of us, right? Humanity was created. You and I were created from the, the, from the very beginning we were created with this original design and purpose to live in the palace of the king, the Garden of Eden, the very place in which the Lord God dwelled. That was our plan. And in the garden, we had it all. We had a loving fellowship and communion with our creator, king. We would walk in the coolness of the day with him. We had meaningful work that was not toilsome and burdensome, but meaningful. We had perfect, loving relationship with one another. And we had a future, an inheritance, a plan and meaning in life to bring the glory of God wherever we go across the earth. Friends, we had it all. But then, like Mephibosheth, we fell. And we fell out of our state of grace and innocence. We fell into a world of corruption and brokenness and sickness and decay and death. We fell into a world of sin. Sin that has crept into every bit of reality that we experience, both inside ourselves and outside. And now in this state of sin, we experience the pain of sin around us and we participate in it ourselves. Guys, we had it all. And then it all went away. Like Mephibosheth, we don't have a name to ourselves. We don't have an inheritance to claim anymore. We don't even have a family to follow and belong to. We have no security or protection. But then worse than Mephibosheth, we are not on the run from King Jesus. We are actively trying to overthrow his kingdom. Every one of our sins from what's in our head to deep in our hearts and out through our hands Every one of our sins is an act of outright rebellion against our king that says, I want to sit on the throne. I want to be the one in charge. I want to be the ruler of my life. 
we are indeed in a desperate situation. We had it all, and now it's all been taken away. We are enemies of the king. When we face such a situation, such desperation, when we come to some glimpse of that reality, we usually respond in one of two ways. When we realize our situation, we respond in one of two ways. On, on the one hand, uh, we can admit our weakness, we can admit our failure, we can admit our condition, and then turn and receive the help that is offered to us, or we can double down, harden our resolve, and fight against that condition as if it were not real. Two ways that we respond to desperation. We either humble ourselves or we stand up with pride. I came across an interesting study that was done about 10 years ago by the United States um, Department of Agriculture. They were looking across the country and, and tracking the percentage of individuals, households that were uh, applying for and using the food stamp program. And they were sort of looking at percentages of counties and figuring out why do some people apply for this and use it, why do some people don't. And they, they found this county, Ash County in North Carolina, they found that this county, in, in one of the top five uh, highest-ranked states of unemployment, in one of the, the, the worst counties with unemployment, Ash County had the lowest percentage of residents applying for food stamps in the country. And so they sent a, a team of investigators to go and ask people and interview and, and find out why are you not taking advantage of this service that is being offered to you. And after doing these interviews and asking questions, they, they came to the conclusion that there was something in their community that they called mountain pride. Mountain pride. That they, they would resist admitting that they needed help. That they were too proud to admit their weakness. Too proud to admit they needed this service. And, and let's for a moment, let's just remove whatever opinions we might have about like federal programs and charities and handouts or whatever, and let's just admit for a moment that we all have a bit of mountain pride in us. And that is the story of the American dream, right? That with a lot of hard work and maybe a little bit of luck, you can overcome any obstacle and, and take down any barrier, you, any one of you, can be whatever you want to be. Pick yourselves up by the bootstraps and get to work. Get your hands dirty and work for what you want. There's a little bit of mountain pride in all of us. We're pretty reticent to admit that we need help. We're pretty shy to admit that we're in a state of desperation. We often are too proud to admit that we're weak and broken and hurting and sinful. We do not often choose the path of humility. We are a proud people, and that is dangerous 
Listen to what C.S. Lewis says in his book, Mere Christianity. He says, in God, you come up against something which in every respect is immeasurably superior to yourself. And unless you know God as that, and therefore know yourself as nothing in comparison, you do not know God at all. As long as you are proud, you cannot know God. A proud man is always looking down on things and people. And of course, as long as you are looking down, you cannot see something that is above you. He goes on and says, whenever we find that in our religious life that we are making ourselves feel that we are good, that we are above all, that we are better than someone else, he says, I think we may be sure that we are being acted on not by God, but by the devil. The real test of being in the presence of God is that you either forget about yourself altogether or see yourself as something small and dirty. Did you catch that? We are proud. And when we are proud, we look down on everyone else and we cannot see God. And I think he's right in calling us out in our religious fervor. We have, uh, we have done a pretty bad job as the church as the capital C church, admitting our own failures. That's the test. Do you see yourself as nothing compared to God? Do you see yourself as someone and something small and dirty, desperate before a holy God? We are detestable apart from his grace. Hey, do you, like Paul, say, I am the chief of sinners? I am the worst person I know. Do you admit your desperate condition, the condition that we see in the life of Mephibosheth? We have nothing at all to bring to the table. We have no place to be in the king's palace. We have no claim to the throne. We have no inheritance. We have no lasting family. We have no security in ourselves. We have nothing. Do you admit that? We, we do our confession of sin every week to give you an opportunity to admit that. There are two people, two kinds of people in this world. There are sinners who know that they are sinners, and they are sinners who do not know that they are sinners. Friends, the church is called to be a community of sinners who confess their sin, who admit their weakness, who admit their condition of desperation. At times I've said, I want our church to become a community of grace. This is what I mean, that we would be known for being the first to admit that we're wrong, that we would be a community that would be first to confess our sin, that we would be known for our humble posture, that we would repent of all righteousness that comes from ourselves. 
Friends, that is a community of grace. We have to admit the desperation that is in each one of us. Let's look now at the kindness of God towards a desperate man. Let's look at the seat at the table. Mephibosheth comes into the palace. He goes up to David. And I want you to see three things that David does for Mephibosheth, showing the kindness of God. First, David dispels any fear in his heart. When Mephibosheth comes, he comes into the palace, and you can imagine in his head he's thinking, this is it. He's going to kill me. He's going to put to death the last person in the house of Saul so that secure his throne forever. This is it. This is my death sentence. David, all he does is says, Mephibosheth, do not fear. Mephibosheth, do not fear. I know that you might be terrified. Do not fear. I am not here to hurt you. I am here to bless you. This is the kindness of God towards us. Whenever we come before God, whenever God's people come before him in fear and trembling, this is exactly what God does to calm us. He calls us by our name and says, do not fear. Before the burning bush, Moses stands there trembling and the word of the Lord comes and says, Moses, do not fear. When, when Samuel is in the temple, the, the tabernacle, and he's sleeping, and God wants to call him to this great purpose, and he's scared, he calls out while he's sleeping, Samuel, do not fear. When Mary runs to the empty tomb and is trembling because she doesn't know where her Savior is, Jesus appears to her and says, Mary, do not fear. When Saul is, is persecuting the church and on his way to Damascus to kill Christians, the Lord appears to him, shaking him and knocking him on the ground, and he says, Saul, do not fear. I love in Isaiah 43, when the nations are surrounding Israel and they are trembling, they don't know how they're getting out of the situation, the Lord says through Isaiah, do not fear. You are mine. I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. Mephibosheth, do not fear. You are mine. I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. The kindness of God dispels any fear that we have in our heart. Secondly, we see that David, he begins to restore to Mephibosheth all that he had before. He says, I'm going to give you all of the land of Saul, your father. And he later tells Ziba and all of Ziba's household that they're going to be servants. They're going to take care of the land and provide for Mephibosheth. Everything that was once taken away from him is now being restored back to him. Friends, this is the kindness of God towards you and me, that everything that has been taken from us in the fall of sin will be restored. 
Like one day, there will be no more decay or sickness or disease. There will be no more death. There will be no more pandemic. Whether in this life or in the life to come, we will receive back everything that has been taken away from us in the fall. There will be great joy. There will be great happiness. There will no longer be broken marriages. There will no longer be wayward children. There will no longer be toiling with no fruit. There will no longer be horrible bosses. There will no longer be financial hardship. There will not be personal insecurity, mental health conditions, nothing. In the age to come, all will be put back the way it was supposed to be, back in the Garden of Eden. Third, finally, we see that David welcomes Mephibosheth into his family. He says, you shall eat at my table always. Mephibosheth will never have to worry about where his next meal comes from. He'll never have to worry who's going to take care of him. He is welcomed at the table. He's welcomed into the palace, not just as an aide or a servant or a counselor or an advisor. No, he is welcomed as one of the sons of the king. Do you know that for those who have placed their faith in Jesus, we are welcomed into his family? I love how the Apostle John puts it this way. See what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. Because we have a family to belong to. We have an inheritance that will be ours. We have a spot at the table. We never have to worry again. David shows Mephibosheth the kindness of God, not because he deserves it, not because he's going to give David something in return, not because he's had a second chance. No, we read it is because for the sake of your father, Jonathan. It is because of another person and a promise made with him that you are being blessed. Mephibosheth received kindness because of another, not because of himself. Friends, do you see the gospel here? Do you see what is true of you and me? You and I are promised the restoration of all things. You and I are welcomed into the family of God. You and I do not have to fear before a holy God because we have been forgiven, not because we deserve it, not because we could do anything to deserve it. We receive the kindness of God because of another and what he has done for you. Before time began, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit They came into a promised relationship with one another that said, we are going to bless the people of God. We are going to rescue them. They promised that to one another. And in the unfolding of that promise, Jesus Christ came into this world to live the very life that you and I were called to that life of personal and perfect and perpetual obedience to the king on the throne. He did what you and I could not do, and then he died in our place. Friends, we, like Mephibosheth, 
are on the run from a king because we are rebellious against him and we deserve death. But Jesus died in our place. And because of his life and his death and his resurrection for us, we are blessed. We receive kindness, not because we deserve it, but because someone else did it for us. I love how at the end of our passage, the writer reminds us Mephibosheth was still lame in both of his feet. Being welcomed in, having a seat at the table, it didn't change his condition. We are still sinners. Yes, we are saints covered in the blood of Christ, but we are still sinners And every day and every week, we are reminded of that. We have a voice in our head that accuses us. Uh, A friend, a fellow pastor down in Florida shared this illustration, which I just think is so beautiful. He says, imagine imagine for a moment you are an ex-convict. You've been released out of jail, and you are trying to get your life back in order. You are applying for jobs left and right. You want to make a a, a better second half of your life than you had before. In every application you fill out, you put your name and your contact, your employment history, and then in every application, there's always a question. Have you been arrested and convicted of a crime? Yeah. You check it every time. And every time you check it, you hear in your head, they're not going to welcome you. They're not going to give you the job. They're not going to accept you. You're not worthy of this. Friends, every week, we come to church with that voice. It says, you're not worthy of this. You don't deserve this blessedness. You've messed up too much. There's no way that, that you're welcomed here. Friends, Jesus has given us this table And he said, there is a seat for you here, not because you deserve it, not because you've worked your way to it, not because in light of this, you'll do something fantastic for me. No, there is a seat for you at this table because I have purchased it for you. I have redeemed you. I have made you worthy. I have called you my own. You are mine. So let's come this morning. Let's come and rest in the truth of the gospel and let it transform us.